on this episode of The James Quandall Show. Do I want to participate all in? I think that's the answer to it. Building a relationship, building a life. It's not trying to protect yourself so much that you're actually not engaging in life. You're keeping up the shields all the time. Robert Party was born in New York City and is one of those rare individuals who embraces change and lives what he calls possibility in action, taking his desire for transformation and putting it into action daily. He received his MBA from Columbia University and was quickly recruited by the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, one of the largest sovereign wealth funds. Shortly after, his wife Desiree was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. Unfortunately, she passed 11 years later. After throwing caution to the wind, Robert leapt from his comfort zone. He changed careers and moved to the same Italian village his great-grandfather immigrated from over 100 years ago. Robert is now a certified life coach, adjunct professor, international guest speaker, and the author of Chasing Life, the remarkable true story of love, joy, and achievement against all odds. November is National Hospice and Palliative Care Month. Head to nhpco.org to learn more. I want to start by telling you how much I loved your book. And I read, and this is the first time I've said this on the podcast, one of my favorite authors is Nicholas Sparks. And I love his books. And your story here, sure, a true story, rivals his stories. And it was just a page turner and brought tears to my eyes. And it was just, you have a gift of writing and you have a really great story to tell. So I just wanted to thank you for this book. You have no idea how much that means. First, Nicholas, I mean, is amazing. So just that comparison is is incredible. Um, also, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback from men uh, because it's, I guess, when you think of the love story aspect of it, a lot of women have given me you know, feedback like, wow, the book was amazing. So having that feedback from you is, is really important because the book... Is, is more than just a love story, right? It's, it's about a, a way of approaching life. And that means so much to me. Yeah, actually, Nicholas Sparks is part of what encouraged my wife and I to move to the coastal South Carolina area because we were living up in Michigan and reading his books and it always sounded magical. So we vacationed here and absolutely just fell in love with it. But this story, you used the love story to share so much. And one of the things I loved was, and I connected with personally, was the risk-taking. You've taken so many risks in your life, at least from my point of view, they felt pretty risky. Is is that sort of one of your values to take chances and take risks? I think before... Great question. Um, it's the first time someone's asked me that question, so I'm loving it at the moment. Um, so I think before it was a value, it was, you know, I I grew up in a dysfunctional relationship with an alcoholic dad, and I think I lived in a risky environment because I really didn't know what was to come, you know, what today would bring, let's say. And I became very comfortable with risk. At the same time, his mom, my paternal grandmother, was a great influence when I was young. And she told me, like, live like a gypsy. That was actually her tagline, live like a gypsy. Don't be afraid to do things. Um, And I started to want to 
push myself. Um, I had this innate desire to see what was on the other side. And then it became a value because what I realized, and this was really before that my wife even, you know, was diagnosed, but we both had this philosophy of we want to wind up at the end of our life having attempted, and I'm using the word attempt in, in a very critical way here. It's very specific um, because it wasn't about trying because when you say, and th this is my belief, but I also physically feel it internally. When we say try, yeah, I, I, I want to try. We've already accepted that we might not achieve. We've accepted that there are um, excuses already available to us. I'm going to try, but when you say attempt, it's a little more empowering. It's just going out there. It's, it's a subtle difference. So we both talked about taking advantage of opportunities, attempting new things. And, and one of the examples in your book, one of the first ones was after your honeymoon moving to Arizona. And yes. to me, that's a risk, but it is it is meeting that value of living like a gypsy and just, yeah. uh, oh, you know, you said this and I love it. And I do want to talk more about risks, but I want to talk about this too. There's so much I want to talk about with you. I'm really excited. The, um, the idea to start your marriage off on your own and create a marriage, your own vision of a marriage away from your families. Can you talk about that? Sure. And that is so controversial, right? Because I, I also have we don't we don't choose our families, so we 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 choose everybody else. And I, I do tend to believe that we should use a similar framework with our families. Um, so the idea of moving away and starting our life without the the let's say the family influence is more just the general way we both looked at life. I mean, there are so many ways we're told to do things from when we we're very young. And, you know, people call it generational programming or, you know, whatever you, you would want to call it, but there are these norms. And we, both Desiree and I, and I, I think that was the, one of the things that just blew me away when I first met her, she did not fit a mold. I did not fit a mold. We, we looked at life differently. So the idea to move away, which was a complete risk and honestly ran out of money, had to come back to the United States, not in, not in the United States, sorry, had to come back to the Northeast, not in the book, but basically living with, with her parents for a while, getting ourselves back on our feet. Regardless, there was so much value in, in taking that risk, learning about ourselves, learning about each other, confronting difficulty as a couple um, and not individually. But that idea of stepping outside of traditional norms was so important to us. So starting a relationship on our own and defining what that meant and not having, you know, both her parents and my parents would have expected a child within the first year. Um, my wife had an idea for her life and her career and a child wouldn't fit into that. I, the way I grew up, I didn't necessarily think I would ever want children. It was extremely important to teach us our values, like actually come into the knowing of what is important to us without the noise, without the static. And so 
That's a great question. Were yeah. you deliberate about it then? So you're in you're in your own your own element here, getting started in your career. She's still, I think, in school there. And were you very deliberate about creating your values there? Or was it just the absence of people sort of imposing values on you allowed you to create them? The lack of people imposing gave us space to understand our values. So we, we were both deliberate in trying to understand who we were as a married couple, who were we? I've always been a really laid back type of person, right? And I don't take a lot of things seriously. I believe in a, a lot in play. I just think everything should be somewhat easy. The moment we got married, I became super soldier responsible. You know, we have to watch everything. My wife's like, who are you? <laughs> you know, like this is the person I married. This is a little weird, right? That helped us understand where, where was that coming from? Same with her. She wasn't she had just graduated um, university, Stony Brook University. She took a year, basically, we didn't know how long it was going to be, but she took some time and she was thinking of actually applying to Tucson University for medical school. So that was part of the plan in a way. But at that point, she and I, I left a, I had already gotten a great job um, in investment banking and I left it and went to Arizona and they allowed me to do business development which was fantastic. Well, that's great because there's. I don't um, think there's a lot of uh, big time investment banking happening there compared to where you were. <laughs> well, no, not now, probably. Um, but you know, this 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 was way back when. You know, um, now Scottsdale has has become a place to retire with a lot of money. Um, and she was working for like some like a Unilever or something like that, and actually testing products on people. Uh, so it was sort of in the realm, but she was like, it really doesn't matter. You know, this is for us to build. I believe the same thing. You know, we got ourselves a little dog, <laughs> which cost a fortune, but it was, it was a great experience, but it's the space. And what I've realized throughout this whole journey is we have to allow space into our life. We have a tendency, especially in, in America, uh, because now having lived outside of the U S in, in for so long, we fill our space with lots of stuff. Like what? Oh, it could be planning, shopping, sex, drugs, alcohol. I mean, there's always, we're always doing. And that idea of just being, being is where the space is, where all of a sudden you're able to see, you know, you need to see depth and you need perspective. You need to remove static. And a lot of the times, a lot of this doing is, counter to understanding your values. That helped us, this, the space away from our family, the space away from norms. Like, who were we? We were just, you know, we show up in a state and back then to tell you the truth, you know, we were from New York, our accent, our mannerisms, um, you know, it wasn't easy to assimilate, let's say, into an Arizona lifestyle. And there was the idea of snowbirds, which I had never heard before, which are the people that come out just for the winter. So, you know, people looking at you, oh, you're a snowbird. And, you know, no, we actually want to build a life here. Yeah, we came to the middle of nowhere in the desert to start a life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was on, we lived on the last road at that time in Scottsdale. And then there was nothing but desert. And now that road is like the center of Scottsdale. Yeah. You know, so there really was nothing, but it was something to, to, to again, attempt, right? Let's go out, see if we can do it, focus on the positives, focus on ourselves. And that really was very critical 
to our ability to confront a lot of other things going forward. Yeah. So what skills did you learn in that time, kind of disconnected from the the out, outside pressures? One of the biggest skills we both learned, and it's not about the pressures as much as, you know what, we're out here on our own. It was about resilience. We were kids, right? I met her. She was 17. I was 19. She was 21. I was 23 when we got married. Not to ask, tell our parents, like, we need help or to figure it all out. You know, you don't necessarily show up as soon as you graduate university and you're able to construct a life. You sort of build it slowly, but all of a sudden we were, we didn't know anyone. It's the same thing that happened to me in Italy. You know, we didn't know anybody. She didn't have work yet. We didn't even know how to like connect the electric, you know, or, or crazy things like that. Um, there were no cell phones at that time, you know, so if you got lost, <laughs> you had to figure it out. There was no GPS. But so a lot of it was um, understanding our capacity or our resilience to do things. Also, it allowed us to understand what was important to us. You know, it wasn't necessarily having the big house or thinking about what other people would think of us. Uh, I grew up, the way I grew up was very much, you know, um, keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, the grass is greener type thing, you know, you know, looking over the fence and seeing that the grass is greener really doesn't do anything for you. Just water your own grass. It's going to be just as green or even more so. So all those different things, that one experience helped us a lot. It helped us to communicate because, it was weird, right? You're in this new place. It is very exciting. You can't treat it like a vacation because it's not a vacation. And you have to learn a different rhythm, trying to make friends or how do you make friends? And first, my wife wasn't working and, and I was doing the business development. So I was going around meeting people, but you know, we didn't have a community. Yeah. So I am curious. We talk about friends a lot on this show because so many people don't really have uh, friends or a very good network of friends. It's mostly coworkers and peers and things like that. But moving so many times, have you kind of figured out how to make friends? And, and when you move to a new area, that's that's a great question, because it does usually fall out from, let's say, your your working environment. What I found, and especially uh, this was both in Abu Dhabi, well, it was all, all three, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and um, when I moved to Italy, was to engage in what I enjoyed. So whether it was yoga or I tend to meet a lot of people in the gym, like going to the gym or going to certain events, economics events when I was in that industry as well, where I could talk a common language with people. And it was easier to develop that friendship, right? Because you have a basis on that. When it's colleagues, in a way, you're fought, forced to get along because you're in a common struggle, let's say, with work. Um, there's that common denominator. But when you, like yoga, for example, I went to yoga because I figured I would meet interesting people and then just start talking to them. And they have wound up being some of my you know, best friends that I can actually rely on. Because I think what the difference between a, a friendship and a, an acquaintance is, is the fact of being able to rely on that person. Yeah. And a lot of times we call people friends when they're really acquaintances. Yeah. One of my past guests, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin said his definition of a friend is someone that will call you back within 24 hours that does that you don't owe money to. 
<laughs> so if you call them and just say, hey, I need to talk, and they call you back, then they might be a friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that, that actually is great. There's so much in friendship um, because friendship, there shouldn't be judgment in friendship as well, right? It's accepting the other person for where they are in their life and not not looking to gain either. There's there's a lot of, you know, there has to be a flow be, between two people for it to be a real connection. And that's, you know, I tend to think more in connection than I do in the definition of friend or not friend or stuff like that, because it's the ability to communicate, the ability, again, the word space, give each other space to be vulnerable or to say I need something or um, the sharing of something. It's the person that you can rely on. I, I happen to be in, um, I'm staying in New Jersey at the moment, even though I live in Italy because I'm here in the US. And this is my friend that I've known for 50 years. Wow. We are family and from from very young age. Okay. He was also where I would go and let's say hide out when my dad was really bad. Like I'd, you know, jump out of the window and run over to his house or something. That's connection. The people in Italy, there, there are people that it's just been wonderful because we can differ on things as well. I don't need you to think like I do. And sort of coming back to the U.S., this is a completely different conversation, but how polarized we have become in the U.S. It's like, I need people to think like I think, or I can't be around them, which then where's the growth? The issue is it takes time to talk through differences when you don't agree with someone. And if it's there's no space, as you said, for that, because you're too busy running through life, then you can't sit and talk about the nuanced differences and still realize you love this person, although you may vote differently. And right. because it takes time. So it's easier just to find people that agree exactly with what you agree with. So you don't even have to talk about those nuances. Love that you pulled that out because that 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 is so important. I like to think of it like as a as a dish of food, right? Um, if you have just a homogeneous flavor. You can talk about an Italian food. food. You can describe an Italian dish. <laughs> yeah, you know, a, a, a typical Italian dish that, you know, especially something from Sicily that has a little spice and has a little Arab flavor, but yet it's Italian and maybe it's got a little Spanish hint to it as well. I mean, that's what our relationships, that's where a lot of the value from our relationships come from, our connections come from, are those nuances. Because we're, my belief is, we're here to understand ourselves. And if we're always sort of looking in a mirror and we've surrounded ourselves with people that are very similar, where is that actual expansion of knowing how we show up, how we think maybe some, some beliefs we really shouldn't have, where we never accept, we, we never actually created those beliefs. We assimilated them when we were younger. I love that. And yeah, that makes so much sense with food too, because who would think fennel or turmeric would be good on lamb? And then you make a lamb dish with fennel or turmeric and it's a whole nother world. It takes the dish to another place because it had a little spice. It had a little bit of uh, potentially some some differences that, yeah, that might be your next, uh, that might be your speaking topic about the food because I know you love to cook. <laughs> oh my God, I love to cook. I absolutely love to cook. And with this friend you, you've you've known for 50 years, I, I'm making a guess here that there's sometimes in, in the last 50 years where you've gone a long period of time without really talking. You know, like, do you need to talk every day or every week or every month to maintain a friendship like that? 
No, not not at all. And that's where I actually uh, this this woman named Devon that lives uh, in in the UK. My wife and I met her in Dubai, and we might speak every one and a half years. You know, it's just one of those things that whatever. And it's like it was one day, and that that's I think a good measurement of friendship that you pick up exactly where you left off. It doesn't deteriorate with the lack of communication or seeing each other or talking to each other, whatever it is. And also there is not that feeling of a lot of times I've noticed that certain people, if you haven't spoken in a while, they're almost offended. And there's none of that type of emotional response to a true friend. Yeah, that's right. And I, I'm thinking of a specific friend of mine where we were high school friends and then he went his way, I went my way. And we catch up every once in a while and we still have so much in common, like hobbies that I've taken and done now that he didn't know he's doing. And it's like you have that true friendship. It's always there. It's It, yeah. it can't be broken, even if you don't talk every single day. And I actually think there's a ton of value in maintaining these childhood friendships if you can, because these people, they know what you were like when you were a kid and what you'd like to do and the hobbies that you had and your true passions before money and life got in the way and maybe clouded your judgment on what you like to do. And you, you know, you text a friend and say, what did I like to do when I was a kid? They might say, well, you loved drawing. And I'm like, wow, I haven't drawn in 20 years. You know, like there's so much value in these old friendships that uh, can't be ca calculated. What you just said is so cool because um, there is a line of, let's say, research done on understanding your values. And they say that um, your values and your passions, I'm sorry, it's not values, it's passions. Your passions are what you used to like to do between the ages of seven and 11. Mm. That's your true passion. So what did you like to do then? So very, I used to like to play teacher. <laughs> That's all right. It makes a lot with, of sense. With, with, with my cousins, I used to, I used, because I was the oldest cousin and yeah, I used to like to play teacher and have a board and, and stuff like that. I liked writing stories up until I sort of stopped that because there was one point in time that I really was like writing poetry and I liked poetry and my dad beat me because it was a very feminine thing to do. That's not the word he used, but I'm we sorry. can imagine. I'm, I'm laughing, but I'm only laughing because you're laughing too. So <laughs> No, these, you know, um, I'm a big Harry Potter fan. So there's a a spell in Harry Potter called ridiculous. Yeah. That's how you get rid of the Bogart. Yes. How you get rid of the Bogart is by making fun of the fear, right. Or turning it into something funny. So I laugh when I think back at a lot of these things, I laugh because first of all, I have a belief that if I'm happy with who I am and where I am in my life, I have to thank my father. I have to thank everything bad that happened. I have to be grateful because it made me who I am. And if I'm not happy with who I am, I have to question why and work on that. But I can't look back and say it's because of that. That's something that taught me something. Where is that? So I laugh at it because there's nothing else really to do. Um, I can't resent, I can't harbor resentment for those things. I believe I can't. So I look at those things that I used to do and I actually have shown up or life has opened that opportunity for me 
where I am somewhat of a teacher. Um, I am a writer. I, I'm more involved in something that was a passion when I was young, but I followed money because money was going to save me. Money was my ticket to freedom, to not be dependent on anyone, anything. That came from the way I grew up. And that came from a lot of anger. I used anger when I was a child to motivate. It was, I'd study 24 seven to make sure I got the grades because I never want, you know, that whole, oh, I never want to be around that guy again. That's also not sustainable. Anger 100% cannot motivate you your entire life. It will get you to a point where it will physically and mentally exhaust you. And I realized that, and this was, thank God that I met my wife so young and what we had, she just, we were that lovey-dovey sickening couple as well. We were always together and we were always touching each other and we were always holding hands. You are. I didn't get that from the book at all. Yeah. Well, I no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, But there, that, yeah, that showed me that to let go of the anger because it was just something that was, was a type of static. It was a drain on energy that really had no bearing whatsoever on my life. And I like to think of the idea of static because you can't watch a program on TV staticky for a long time, but we can live that way for a really long time without being aware. How do you know what, if you are? If, if you're staticky? Yeah. Well, great. The, the question is looking at what's serving you, or you can think of it this way. Um, what's contributing to my, my feeling good and what is draining me? And it's really just, it's that awareness, the static is draining. It's unnecessary. And so when you start to ask yourselves questions of how am I living? How am I showing up? How do I feel in in these moments? It's not easy. It's not an easy process at all because we're not used to asking ourselves those questions. We're more likely to point fingers at things and not realizing that it's us that's creating it because it's us that's creating the definition, the story behind those things. Um, so that's really what the journey with Desiree when, when she was diagnosed was, was really all about. It was getting rid of that unnecessary. Um, it happens to, I wound up volunteering in the chemotherapy office where she got chemo, the doctor's office. And that just sort of happened because of meeting some people that were really amazing people and they had nobody with them. And I became what was called a chemo companion. There was no such thing, but I was just hanging out there. And with the diagnosis is that aha wake up moment of questioning the static, you know, wanting to get rid of the unnecessary. The thing is, and this is never really um, received well by some people hearing this, but we all have these because we all have and so can you repeat that? It, it sure. cut out for a second. Okay. So um, what I said is we all have a terminal disease because we're all going to die. It's just what our life is. We're not meant to survive life, but it's not until we get a piece of paper from a doctor. A lot of the times that we say, oh, F, am I living the way I really wanted to live? Am I showing up in my life the way I wanted to show up? Am I the main character in the story of my life? Or am I living based on other people's expectations, other people's scripts? That's sort of the move to Arizona. We had to start writing our own story. We weren't living somebody else's script. And that's key, those types of ideas and questions to understanding 
whatever static is in our lives. Moving to Arizona gave you an opportunity to evaluate the static, but so did the the treatments and living across the planet from each other. And what what did you during that period realize was noise? When I was in the Middle East and Desiree was still in yeah. the United States, there was there was so there there were so many things that we learned. Um you know, the funny thing is, and this sounds crazy, but we had to write handwritten letters to each other at the beginning because the internet was just starting. And so I was I was working in Abu Dhabi. I was working for the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Hotmail had just come out. We both signed up for it, but it kept getting blocked by the Emirates because it had the word hot in it. <laughs> and so it was considered maybe a sex site. And so email really didn't work when when we were first together. And so how do you stay connected without constant connection? We did we did call each other and stuff like that, but we were experiencing many different things. And so what did it teach us about static? It taught us a lot about understanding. We don't need to be together 24-7 to really be connected. It taught us a lot about figuring out what was important to share with each other, those key things which were fears and hopes. It wasn't necessarily the little things that we think about a lot of the times when we're together with someone. Oh, what did you do today? It was more, let's get to the heart of this. You know, what, what is our relationship built on? Our relationship is built on, yes, you know, sharing life together, but it's more about sharing who we are. It's about our, our dreams and our, and our hopes and supporting each other. All of a sudden, some of that other stuff. And that's what helped us, I think, also with her journey with disease is we got got away from some of maybe the superficial stuff that sometimes can be static to have deeper conversations. We were always very connected and we challenged each other a lot. Um, we both believed in the concept of stretching each other to you know grow and experience other sides of our personality, let's say. But in the space because we did meet in a different country every six weeks. I mean, I went out to the Middle East to save money and <laughs> there was no money saved. You know, that was a big grand plan. But you, you know, went to the Middle East to, to live like you're 65 when you weren't 65, right? Yes. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, we and this is really interesting, right? Because her life actually wound up being a complete example of this. But even before her diagnosis, we we weren't those long-term planners where, you know, when we're older, this is the time to do things. We were always like, let's do it now. Uh, there was something, and you, you wonder, right, was that, were we aware something was going to happen where time was going to run out? You know, I don't think so. But we had this of always, you know, let's do it now. Wow, that sounds a lot of fun. Let's do it. And you know, we're, so we, I was, I had a great job. I really did, but it's not that, you know, we were putting tons of money in the bank because we were just sort of spending it for the experience of life or what opportunities popped up. And so we were meeting every six weeks in a, a different country, but those were vacations, you know, and those were fun. And those were times to, you know, definitely reconnect physically <laughs> and all, all that stuff. But those real conversations we wrote and that I think really helped us understand the difference be between the superficial noise um, between us, 
then all the other stuff, um, you know, I was there. I didn't, there wasn't theater really, you know, I couldn't go see a play or things like that. You know, there were films, but at, back then they were actually censored. And I remember the the screen going black for a second. <laughs> um, and it, it's amazing how the Emirates has, has really evolved because also, you know, in Muslim um, belief, you can't draw or paint the body. That's why they have this beautiful calligraphy. And so sometimes in the, you know, let's say in a, a scene in a movie, there might be a painting of a nude woman and there would be a black box over that in the film. So, and it's evolved now. It's, it's not like that at all, but so I didn't have a lot of the things that I would have done to occupy me. And that also allowed me to be more introspective because all of a sudden, and this is what I was talking about earlier in terms of, you know, shopping or music or super exercising or work, those doing, doing, doings, there weren't a lot of things that I could do. And then I just had to sort of be with myself. And then I started to realize how some of that stuff was static as well. How I'd walk aimlessly through a shopping mall for absolutely no reason, but to just have stimulation coming in and maybe because I didn't want to think about something. So how do we recreate that for ourselves? Because to me, it sounds some dosage of that is healthy, some introspection, some dosage of deeper conversation than just what happened that day? How do we recreate that if we're not thousands? So I'll turn the question back on you because I believe you already know the answer, right? So what would it take for you to do that? Well, for my wife and I, we have a routine of doing things like that. Each quarter, we completely disconnect and we go to some offsite location. It's usually in the mountains where there's no cell service. And we just spend quality time together, taking walks, eating good food, sleeping in, taking naps, and talking and planning and talking about our goals and our fears and what we want to achieve in this life and what we're not happy with, what we are happy with, and we document it all. And we do that every quarter. And it's based on this uh, 20-year plan that we sort of created. You said you're not planners. We're big-time planners. We have these like 20-year goals, and they may change. But we wrote sort of what we would like our life to look like in 20 years. And then we kind of work our way there each of these meetings. So love it. Absolutely love it. So the idea of not not being a planner, um, that was to, let's say, put off experiences. Aha. Okay. Got it. So you would say rather you're basically saying don't worry about the money. Go do go to the go to the Tangiers and figure that out later. Say yes to the opportunity. Yes to the opportunity. Now it, you, you brought up money, which I have to throw this caveat here. So yes, I was an investment banker. I also left the job. Um, I was in debt after my wife passed away. I was teaching English for eight dollars an hour when I moved to Italy because I needed to make the $8 an hour. So the idea of money, there are ways, like right now, no, nobody in the United States wants to work and they're paying really good salaries to work almost everywhere at the moment, right? So, you know, there are opportunities, there's ways to find these those things out, but you have to ask yourself that idea of being the character in your life. Do you want to be the person that goes out, takes the opportunity, and it's not about failing or succeeding. It's about being the person that takes the opportunity. 
So the experiences, we were all into those experiences, but we did have the plan sort of like you and your wife have of what do we want our life to look like? Who do we want to be in that life um, individually and as a couple? Because the idea of, and I do use the line in the book because, you know, it was you know, uh, the, the McGuire book and you complete me, but, um, you know, one shouldn't complete the other. One should complement the other. That's really what it is. It's one plus one equals three because the, the relationship then becomes its own thing. Um, so that question you asked me in terms of how do you do it to have those conversations with your wife, um, to talk about fears and aspirations and everything else. The number one thing is being vulnerable, right? Um, is showing up and saying, especially you as a guy, yeah, I have these worries. I have these fears. Um, I want to do this. Maybe I, I don't feel secure doing that. And that's really what it, what it comes down to. This idea of vulnerability is so key, in my opinion, to living a quality life. Because I say this all the time, you know, if we approach life with armor on, a shield and armor, and we're not being vulnerable, over time, that shield and armor become the source of our strength. We identify with those things, and we're not actually really engaged in life. There's that barrier that we've put up. And you take that stuff off. Like I always say all the time, if you really think if you're wearing like the, the, the helmet of armor, you know, you have that narrow little slit. You're really not seeing much out out of those. You have no peripheral vision. Like you could have something great right here and you just don't even see it. <laughs> exactly. So why not? And this is the question of, you know, who do you want to be in the story of your life? And I believe that we all should have a, you know, a Nike tagline. And that doesn't necessarily have to be Nike, just do it. But a hashtag like mine's possibility in action, which means I always want to go out there. I don't know what's going to happen at the end of my life. And maybe I'll have money. I won't have money. Maybe, you know, I just went skydiving. You know, I could have <laughs> broken a leg. I was like, plus my glasses flew off as I was skydiving and I didn't know even where I was. So, um, but do I want to participate all in? I love that term all in. And I think that's the answer to it you know, building a relationship, building a life. It's not trying to protect yourself so much that you're actually not engaging in life. You're keeping up the shields all the time. I've discovered whether I'm playing tennis or enjoying a day full of competitive chess, that caffeine and sugar highs just don't last. You instead need something that won't spike your blood sugar and cause a crash. I avoid most pre and post-workout products because they're full of added sugar natural flavors, and other ingredients I don't approve of, and they end up making me feel worse than if I hadn't taken them at all. That's why this podcast is brought to you by UCAN. UCAN's products are made differently. Their patented superstarch ingredient has the outstanding ability to provide a steady release of energy without spiking blood sugar levels. Controlling blood sugar is the key to optimizing focus, performance, and recovery. Try UCAN's delicious chocolate peanut butter energy bar, cookies and cream energy and protein powder with 19 grams of protein per serving, or grab the ready-on-the-go Edge Pouch. These products will give you the long-lasting benefits of Superstarch to balance your blood sugar and provide long-lasting energy for your workout and your day. Because you're a listener of this podcast, you'll get 20% off your entire order by going to youcan.co slash jamesq. That's youcan.co slash jamesq. Give Youcan a try today. What do you think that we're afraid of, of 
being vulnerable? Great question. Again, um, and I think more than anything else, people are afraid of. And I'm ta- I'm talking from myself, but also talking from the clients I've worked with. You know, there there is fear of not being accepted. We are tribal, and I think more than ever we've become a society that compares ourselves to everything. And whether that's because of Instagram or Facebook or whatever the case is, you know, we are so worried about not fitting in or not being accepted. I'll just throw this caveat here about fitting in. When you try to fit in, what you're actually saying to yourself is you as you are, are not worth it. And so I'm going to change that so you can fit with this group. And what you've done is you've betrayed yourself and internally, you know it, and that just eats away at you. If you just are vulnerable and you show up as you are and people don't like you, that's a natural selection process. What a great thing. You don't even have to think about it. You're just like, oh, that person doesn't like me. That person falls off. Why is it important to have that? But it does come from this whole tribal nature of needing to feel connected. So I think one of the biggest fears is that whole idea of not being accepted. Feel Fear of failure is huge. What is success? For me, finding a job to teach English for, for $8 an hour and eating pasta for like three months in a row or pizza, which is really cheap in Italy, by the way, and really good. Um, I was really happy being that person saying that I can do that. Or when my wife and I, we Arizona, for example, no money, seriously, no money. McDonald's used to have this is way back when, you know, the quarter pounder or the ham, no, it was the hamburger, quarter pounder hamburger. I can't remember, but it was 25 cents. I'd buy a hundred of them (laughs) and I'd freeze them. And that was dinner for a month. It sounds horrible, but we both in a way were proud of, you know what? We want the life we want to such an extent that we'll have to sacrifice other things. And that can lead to also sacrificing friends and family and everything else, you know, when you really think about the character. So there's that fear as well, um, the idea of success and the fear of failure. And I do believe that people, and I've had a few, especially when I, when I talk to people that have encountered death, they're so afraid of not getting their life right and missing out on so many different things that they don't know how to choose. And so all of our life is all about choice. This, you know, as the economist, I can talk about opportunity costs that every yes we say is a no to something else. But until we're conscious in the choices we're making, we're never going to feel comfortable making choices. And then there's that fear of, am I making the right choice? And so those three fears, I think, stop us from being vulnerable because all of those three fears in the way they are constructed and defined are have a big impact. They sound like they have a big impact, but if you move to the other side of it and you're vulnerable and you're saying to yourself, the definition of success for me is to go out and step into life and do what whatever I can to make life work for me instead of against me. Yeah. There's a There's a Bible verse I like, and it says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many enter through it. And I just think about fitting in and being normal. Well, is that actually a good thing? When you look at happiness levels, uh, debt levels, whatever metric you want, health levels, you take any of the metrics, normal 
to me is would not be the ideal goal. So is fitting in that important? That's that's ama- that's that's it. I mean that that really is it because we are all unique, right? And so why not understand what makes you unique instead of ignoring those things to fit into a box with other people? And I think what, what's actually this whole polarization, one is is now we really just have like two camps, right? Everything is 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 one or the other. It's 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 you know, we and them, we and them, we and them. But we are all individual. And imagine the contribution if we all allowed each other to be individual and bring what's unique. Because the way I look at things right now, some people could be listening and they're like, that guy's out of his effing mind. And other people are like, yeah, I resonate with that. In the end, I know this is the way I think because of my experiences and valuing that I'm unique. I don't claim to be a Yoda by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I know that the way I look at things is a different, and this is why I talk about, I, I actually have a kaleidoscope. I've had a kaleidoscope for, I think, 25 years. Um, the idea of life is a kaleidoscope. We are the colors in a kaleidoscope. Our emotions, our experiences are all part of our own individual kaleidoscope. But in the end, imagine if the kaleidoscope only had one color or two colors, right? It's not not all that enjoyable. Um, And that's who we are as as a population. We're a bunch of colors. We're a bunch of experiences and emotions and thoughts. And yeah, there are rules. Of course, you don't go around shooting people and stuff like that. But the uniqueness, that contribution that we can make is so, so important. And I'm hoping that we get there, that we don't try to fit in as much anymore. And we don't try to have the Instagram lifestyle and, you know, compare ourselves. I'd love if we admired people, you know, like reading, I don't know, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, by the way, was was an amazing woman, right? Um, I find her admirable. And you had a you had a, a quote from her, I think was the, I don't know if that's considered the dedication, but I'll read it. It said, sure. the purpose of life is to live it, to taste experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experience. Eleanor Roosevelt. Now that it just that gives me goosebumps every single time. It it was a quote that was important to to my wife wife and I, and I think it's actually what we live because taste it to the utmost. How can you taste or feel to the utmost if you're hiding behind a wall? And isn't it horrible that? We only have X, first of all, staggering statistic is I think we have 27,000 days, the average life. Now, if we only had $27,000, boy, would we be really careful spending if that's all we had for our entire life. Mm -hmm. You're born, here's your inheritance, $27,000. You're never going to get another dollar. You'll be really careful. How I'd probably die with either 26,999 or zero, depending on my, how I'm feeling. <laughs> exactly. But the thing is, we don't think about that in terms of our life, right? So if today there's something you can feel to your utmost, to the utmost, are you going to let fear get in the way? Because what is really fear? Fear is a future-focused emotion. There's no real validity behind fear. Yes, there's fear of if you're, you know, walking down a dark street or something like that, you have to be cautious. But fear of if I make this decision, you know, it's like the movie Sliding Doors. You make that decision, you have no idea what's going to happen um, from that decision. So it could also be a positive thing. We focus on fear because we are genetic, 
genetically wired to protect ourselves. And, you know, there were saber tooth tigers way back when, which there aren't now. And sometimes for some people, that's an email coming in their inbox and they hear the ding and they're like, oh my God, my boss. And, you know, they get that adrenaline rush because they're afraid of what it might say. But fear, in my opinion, is, is nothing more than finding excuses against reaching beyond your comfort zone. I'm a big acronym person. So, right. So finding excuses against reaching beyond your comfort zone. If you think about, and I use this example a lot, you're walking in a forest starting to get darker and darker. The trail is getting narrower and narrower. There's a point that the trail actually ends because people turn around. Imagine if you took that next step and saw what was on the other side, you know, maybe that's where Oz actually is, you know? So, um, but it's that point that you say, am I curious? Do I want to see what is next? Because the fear that happens in that moment is only something we've constructed in our head because no one else has gone that way. It's so then, hard though to to live that way when your friends, your family, your bosses, your neighbors, so many people aren't living that way and allowing fear to stop them from taking risks or moving to Arizona or moving to Abu Dhabi, trying a new hobby that they might not be good at at first. Or when they were a kid, they liked to dance and they're like, wow, I'd love to do that, but I'm too afraid to go learn because I'd be an adult surrounded by kids. Like there's so many things we don't do because of that fear and of embarrassing ourselves around the people around us. Like how how do we get away, away from that? Well, have you ever heard the, and I forget who said it, but um, the quote is, we are the sum of the five people we spend the most time with. Yeah. Yeah. And and Frank Shamrock also talks about living a life of plus, minuses, and equals, which is plus should be someone that challenges you. Minus should be somebody you can mentor and equal is is a peer, right? So that idea of how do you do it? Well, are you in an environment that actually fosters that? And once you understand your values, and if you actually look internally, the hard choice then is to maybe move to Arizona because you're not around the people that will support the way you want to live. They won't support, let's say, the new you or the authentic you. And that's where, again, there's this idea of you might lose friends, you might lose family. After Desiree passed away, even while Desiree was ill, but especially after she passed away, I did lose friends and family, because I wasn't grieving the way they thought I should grieve. Or, you know, I was going out there and again, saying, I want life to work for me. I'm going to figure something out. I want experience. And that was something that they're not able to do. And so it also turned them in a way off to me because I was reflecting something they want to do and they're afraid to do. And I'm an example of it can happen. And it made them feel uncomfortable. In the end, I guess the question more is, do you want the fear of embarrassment or the fear of losing certain people around you to be more important than the potential of pursuing something that is important to you? Uh, how great could it be if you just did the dancing that you loved to do as yeah. a kid and you realized how much you loved it and you could end up teaching the kids or something? The statement I say to myself all the time is, what if I can F and pull this off? <laughs> what if, yeah, what if it, yeah, what if I fail? And, you know, what if you don't, right? What if I succeed, right? Um, that that was Italy. You know, it, it was absolutely insane that I actually did that. What was Italy? What was the goal for Italy for you when you, when you went to, or you're in Italy now? Like, what's the goal? It, 
it was it was a dream I had when I was a kid. Um, I always wondered what it would be like to live in Italy, and so it was nothing more than I want to see if it can work. I don't want to give that up. The worst the worst possible thing is I was going to be in my fifties living with my mom. I mean, that was like if you think about oh, and I forget who, who's the gentleman right now. I'm I'm probably I'm sure you know who he is. Um, he's written books on Stoic Ryan Holiday. I think it's Ryan Holiday. I, no, maybe not. Anyway, yeah, he he, some, he wrote uh, he writes books about ego and and modern Stoicism theory. Yeah, no, there, there's somebody else. Maybe it's Tim Ferriss. If if I think about it now, that basically says, you know, plan the failure and plan the fear. And so, what's the worst thing possible that can possibly happen? And then, what would you do if that happened? And then go out and, and do it. So here I was. I was in Dubai, having a great job, living in a five-star hotel. You know, was at a party, met the princess of Sweden. You know, um, other people, right? It was this crazy life after my wife um, passed away, and I went back to Dubai. And then I just pick up one day, and I put everything in two suitcases, and I show up in Italy, and didn't speak the language, didn't have a job, didn't have a place to live, didn't know anyone. So you quit your job? Yeah, yeah. I the the whole thing uh, just picked up clean slate. Um, I became a life coach, I, partly for myself, honestly, to tell you the truth, because I wanted to understand. I technically became my wife's life coach without ever having really like studied life coaching. Just the experience was the training, right? But I wanted to understand more about myself. I wanted to understand how to really use some of the things that I was going through. And then it just led to, led to the career and then the idea of the book. But that Whole, all came out of, I watched my wife become the founding director of palliative care at New York hospital while having metastatic breast cancer. What am I doing staying someplace where I don't feel comfortable? Finance to me was the go-to, right? It was that childhood fear. My whole world is turned upside down. What's going to save me money? That story value anymore. That was just something that was programmed in my brain as a kid. And as soon as I looked at the story, what value is it giving me? It was preventing me from actually taking off the armor, being vulnerable and going out and seeing what was next. And I was willing to make the sacrifice of teaching English for $8 an hour and living in literally a 300 square foot apartment where I had two electric burners in a closet and an air, airport style sink. <laughs> that was my kitchen. And you know, my friends looked at me and they're like, seriously, you're living like that? You just had this two-bedroom apartment looking at the Burj Khalifa in, in the middle. What are you doing? And I'm pursuing. I'm chasing life. I want those experiences. Um, it brought me joy to test myself. And test is sort of not the right word, right? Because we think of the idea of testing our metal. But um, Well, you, it brought you the ability to discover yourself. Yes. Yeah. So, and in the end, I think not only having watched my wife pass away, but a lot of our friends when I became that chemo companion is the fact that what we, what I watched is people wanted to know who they were. That was That's what you're left with when you're on your death is who was I? How did I live? Who did I love? What did I feel? That That's really what we're left. I didn't see anyone think about the size of their home or the money they were leaving or having, you know, worked overtime and been a great employee. Now we should do that, right? We should, we should always show up as our best in whatever we do, but that wasn't what people wanted to talk about at the end. They wanted to talk about their stories. 
and that's where I learned the whole idea of story storytelling, but the importance of stories, which is something I love that with your podcast, right? That that's become a thing. I learned that more in Italy than anything else, how people sit in the piazza and they tell stories about their life or they tell experiences they've had or the struggles they have. And that's where news and information used to come from, right? Sit around the campfire and it grew, grew, grew. Um, where then now, you know, Facebook has become the way to share stories and people call each other friends on Facebook. Is that really a, a real environment? Um, I don't tend to think so. I'm older generation. So well, I uh, deleted mine and <laughs> I, I don't think anyone, maybe my mom and one other person noticed. So what did that tell you? Right. Yeah. And right? actually before that, I did an experiment and I removed my birthday from Facebook and you know, on my birthday, I'd get hundreds of messages. I deleted it from Facebook. The next year, I got like three or four. So was it real? I said it wasn't. And um, and then uh, is that is Italy still like that? Like, are you talking present tense or was that how it was the, well, in the piazza? I, I actually I live in a town of 900 people. It's a medieval town. It's where my great grandfather came from. It's also where Madonna comes from, by the way, which is. <laughs> hysterical because I hang out with her cousins and I'm like, <laughs> I can't believe like I'm somehow connected to Madonna's family. She's never been, but, and so it's still that way. Um, Rome, I did live in Rome and you still see people go to the piazza. It is the, the, the place to congregate, but because Rome is such a touristy city, the piazzas have become places to engage in touristy activities or, you know, these specialties, specialized restaurants or things like that. But in the small town I'm from, yeah, you will sit in the piazza and, you know, there's this one uh, older woman named Rosalba. She'll tell me stories about her family and, you know, the war because uh, during World War II, the Germans took the whole town over because it was affluent and had, you know, food and was the way it's located, it's almost impossible to attack. So you hear things like that, and they're, they're telling you about resilience. They're telling you about surrendering to events that they couldn't handle. You know, they were in, not in control of. And those are such important lessons. And that's where, when I talk about, you know, finding people that you admire, reading stories about people you admire, those are the things that really change your life. My ability learning the idea of surrender that I had to let go of the final outcome with Desiree. She could have survived. She could have passed away, had nothing to do with me. But what role I could play was the way I showed up on a daily basis. And that's what was under my control. The future is never under our control, which when you're into that surrender, you understand that idea of surrender. You understand the idea of an impermanence, which is another important thing. Impermanence is everything is changing. Every single thing is changing. The ancient Japanese had a calendar of 72 seasons to actually show how things change so rapidly and so frequently. But when, when you're in that space, you then realize that the only thing under your control are your choices. And you can then, it helps you let go of fear of future events because no matter how much you worry about them, you don't know if it's going to happen or not. That's a great spot to end our conversation, I think. And I have 
a whole page of additional things I want to get into. So we'll have to do that next and okay, talk cool. about the romance and the seven-year itch and palpative care and all you learn through that part. And I just think that this um, thinking outside the box and taking risks and uh, not keeping up with the Joneses and finding who you are and all that, that's, that's so much good takeaways that will help. That, that helped me. They really do. That it just, it, it, it's fantastic. And so what I want to do is ask you to tell us where we can learn more about you, what you're working on right now, and how we can support that effort. And um, before I do that, I will say the book that we've been talking about, it's sort of a, I would call it a personal memoir and also sort of a life mindset manual, maybe, is a good way to describe it. Um, the book is called Chasing Life, The Remarkable True Story of Love, Joy, and Achievement Against All Odds. Um, and it's by Robert Party and Phyllis, uh, is it Melhado? Melhado, yeah. And um, it it's a great read. And I will, uh, in the show notes for this episode, which will be at quando.com slash party, that's quando.com slash P-A-R-D-I, I'll link to buy this book. Yeah, so tell us. Definitely. I just want to make a call out to Phyllis because she was actually a patient in the same room with my, with my wife oh, during really? her cancer okay. journey. And she just, I was the guy that was always in the chair with my wife. I don't think they would allow that anymore today. But <laughs> so she just got to know us. And she had said to me early on, you should write a book. And I said, I'm, my head's really not there. I don't want to be the guy that sort of uses his wife's experience, you know? And so she said, well, just tell me some story. And I had told her, and a couple of years later, she showed up and she said, you know, here's about, you know, 40 pages of a skeleton for a book if you want, because these stories are just amazing. And so, and she's a great friend. So, but um, anyway, okay. So they could go, if anyone wants to get to know me, they can go to robertparty.com or they could go to chasinglifethebook.com to learn a little bit about the book or Desiree and I. Um, as for, I'm working on a, on a bunch of different things at the moment, um, but I've just finished writing a children's book, which is bizarre when I think about it because Desiree and I didn't have kids, but it was what I think my wife and I would have liked to read to our children hmm. if we had had kids. It's not really a book because it, it is a, a novel. It's 180 pages. So it's not necessarily a book for a child to read as much as a parent to read to the child, because that's what we would have done. And it's about life lessons. It's about not being afraid to make mistakes. It's about how um, our actions affect other things. It's about the environment. You know, the, the child is taken into the land of imagination by a magical being. And oh, so, that sounds great. Um, that's that's what, what it's about. That hopefully will be out in March. But the other thing that I, I'm working on as well is I speak a lot on the concept of joy because I think it's it's misunderstood the difference between joy and happiness. And the thing is that, and that's what sort of the book is about as well, joy is always around us. We just have to lean into it. And what I always say is, if you think about it, if there's a little child playing with bubbles and the bubbles blow by you, you stop for a second. You have that smile. It just is instinctive. You, We all stop and we look at a rainbow and there's that smile, that feeling inside. That's joy. 
we have to learn how to lean into joy and stop chasing happiness. Happiness is buying the new car. You love it when you first get it and it smells great. A month later, it's just a car. And then you want something else mm. where joy is always there. So um, that's what I've been doing a lot lately is um, talking about that concept, especially because the uncertainty of the pandemic, what people went through during the pandemic is very similar to the journey I went on with my wife and her illness, because at the end, her illness was, was a lot about uncertainty, not being able to control things. And it was only until we filled our life where we focused on joy that that stuff became less necessary. It became, the, that was the static. We were able to push the disease to a certain extent, the uncertainty to the side and stay more in the moment. Well, thank you so much for sharing these stories and for the work that you're doing. And I'll link to everything you just mentioned in the show notes. And I just can't wait to, to continue our conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall Show. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the next episode. Subscribing, leaving a review, and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show grow. See you next time.